0: Hi everybody and welcome to the History of Networking at the Network Collective. We keep changing the name every podcast. That's so. the name. <laughs> the history of <laughs> networking. That is the name. History of networking. So there you go. So um, today we have Daniel Walton with us. I worked with Daniel way, way back at Cisco. Boy, Daniel, that was a long <laughs> time ago. I remember when I when I pinged you and I asked you about this. Your wife, Allie, PM'd me and said. Is Daniel really old enough to participate?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that
2: sounds like Ali,
1: that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> I, I'm now old enough to be part of history, I guess. That uh, <laughs> <laughs> beats the alternative.
0: <laughs> Very true. So tell us about yourself, Daniel. Where are you working now? What are you working on?
1: Uh, so my name's Daniel Walton. Uh, I work at Cumulus Networks. Um, so I'm a principal engineer at Cumulus Uh, what do i work on so that's a good question um so historically i've I've worked on bgp for a good chunk of my career uh cumulus i get i get to work on lots of different stuff uh i still work on on routing and bgp but just not exclusively anymore um i guess lately i've been working on uh this thing called nclu which is sort of our our cli for cumulus so that was sort of a big project last year Um,
0: that's very sad (laughs)
1: <laughs> that it's a big project?
0: <laughs> no, no. That you're doing a CLI. <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was fun. Yeah, I got got to do something different. Um, you know, in, in Python. In, in Python, yeah. I'm a big big Python fan. Um, oh
0: well. So you wrote your BGP in Python, right?
1: Uh, I have done that. It, uh, I sort of did it as a, an experiment once, and um, I'm not really going anywhere. But it was kind of cool. Um, it was. <laughs> That's uh, cool. I, did, I had a SQLite database because I, I started thinking, I was like, eh, why hasn't everyone ever done BGP with a, a SQL database? So <laughs> I, did, I did Python with a SQL database for BGP.
0: Oh, wow, that's cool. Nice. So, Donald, been a long time since I've talked to you. This morning, twice, free-range routing call.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, I'm Donald Sharp. I actually also work at Cumulus Networks with Daniel. He sits across the road from me. Like Yeah, and he throws stuff at me, too. Um, I I ostensibly work on Roudin, and I help herd the free-range Roudin cats.
3: Cool. All right, Jordan. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm Jordan Martin. I'm one of the co-founders of Network Collective, and I do not work at Cumulus. Never have, (laughs) nor Cisco. So... uh,
0: No, well, I work we're as, just have to kick you off the call. I know, I know. I feel, like I, I feel very much
3: an outsider in this, in this call right now. No, I work as a as a principal consultant for data center technologies at
0: uh, Core BTS. Cool. Excellent. All right, so today we are talking about the history of BGP optimizations. You know, as much as everybody likes to talk about how slow BGP converges. It actually converged more slowly in the past. <laughs> <laughs> at least until Daniel got his hands on it and started playing with it. So I remember this all started, I think, um, in the scaling team, right, Daniel? At Cisco, and we were like all the DNA team, and all those people were like wandering around together doing stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one of, I guess one of, not my first job, but one of my first jobs at Cisco was on this uh, routing protocols, scaling, and deployment team. Uh, So we got to... We got to work with lots of different customers on, you know, helping them with BGP configs and design and things like that. Uh, and then sort of the other half of the job was trying to figure out where all the bottlenecks were uh, in BGP and trying to figure out how to fix them. Um, so, yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of stuff sort of happened uh, in that time frame or I guess a few years after that. I eventually left that team and went into development. So I was a, a BGP developer for iOS for I guess, about six or seven years. Um. So sort of, you know, most of this is like 2000 to 2006-ish sort of time frame.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I'm trying to remember when I left Cisco. It was after you did, I'm pretty sure, because I think you went to Cumulus before that.
1: Yeah, someone, something like
0: that. Yeah, something like, I don't know. Okay, I don't know when it was, but yeah, that's that's cool. So, all right, so tell us about what happened. Like, let's just go down the list. I see there was a lot of stuff. You sent me a nice, cool document yeah. that we can talk about. But.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I, I started I started trying to uh, jog my memory and was, and was writing stuff down. Um, so the, the first thing I could think of uh, was actually before I was involved with BGP, and that was uh, peer groups. Um, so initially in BGP, you know, you would configure all of your neighbors, and BGP would go through, and it would build all the updates for the first neighbor, and then it would build the updates for the second neighbor, and it would basically do them all individually. Um, and this didn't scale very well, um, and then you had this other problem of, well, your config became really, really big uh, when you had lots and lots of neighbors. Um, so someone came up with the idea of doing peer groups, which is basically like sort of like a little template, right? So you have a peer group called, maybe it's called ISP. uh, And you say, okay, this peer group ISP has the following, you know, configuration, and then you can assign peers to that peer group.
0: And this relates back to TCP, right? And the way BGP interacts with TCP, from what I remember. I'm trying to remember, like... When 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 you were working on this, there was this thing about BG, building BGP uh, TCP segments for BGP and having to build an individual segment for every peer that you were talking to, and doing something like this actually helps you um, in the optimization in that direction someplace. Okay. I, I'm trying you know,
1: to. So it so the the big the big scale benefit with peer groups is um, so let's say I've got ten neighbors that are part of a peer group. Uh, You can build the update for the first member of the peer group and then basically just replicate it for the other nine So it just saves you a lot of CPU uh, In terms of you know how many cycles it takes you to to put together all these updates
0: You're not actually doing a mem copy You're just pointing to the same update to multiple neighbors until you've filled the entire peer group out and then you can actually take the Packet that you've built in memory out And, and by the way as a matter of reference Do you remember? How many peers and how many routes before you started playing with this? Uh,
1: I remember it was remember really the bad. the how many script. <laughs> yeah. I was just um, trying to
0: remember exactly what it was because before and after would be really interesting to try to remember.
1: I, I should I, I should have looked that up. I, I probably could find the, the slide somewhere. Um, I don't remember the numbers. I, I remember that the, the graph, like after we started working on it, just like, you know, had a nice little curve up. So that, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah, initially, we so we had the how many peers, how many routes thing was. Uh, I wrote this test that it measured what was it? Given a certain number of routes, how many peers could you converge within ten minutes? And so this was like initial boot up or you know clear IPBGP star convergence is what we were what we were measuring. Um, I remember like one customer said, "Well, I want to know what the answer is for five minutes," and someone said, "I want to know what the answer is for fifteen minutes." So I sort of just picked in the middle and, and picked 10. And uh, I remember I, I told that story at networkers one time and someone pointed it out. It's like, well, you didn't make either customer happy. You know,
0: you <laughs> <laughs> Daniel runs yeah. the ATM of, mm-hmm. of BGP peering test. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
1: but uh, but yeah, that was that was a big sort of measuring stick that we used for for several years to sort of gauge like how our scalability was was doing. Um and, it, yeah, it did increase pretty dramatically over, over the years.
0: Yeah, um, I remember it increasing. I just don't remember how much. I know it was like a maybe even a tenfold increase or something or even yeah, more. Oh, yeah, it, at least. But, but I don't remember exactly what the number was. So, I were. mean, I guess
2: one thing that we should be careful, I mean, we should remind people of, this is the mid-'90s, right? So CPUs were not exactly known for their blazing yeah. speed at that yeah. point in time, especially CPUs chosen by vendors to on their routers or switches
0: right they the were hottest not necessarily box. bleeding edge yeah i think the hottest box we had in the lab was the 4500 or 7200 vxr and that was even after these tests so like i think you were testing on like a 7500 right
1: yeah we we had a lot of 7500s and 7200s um so yeah not not a whole lot of cpu memory was the other big thing um and this comes up like Several scalability things we tried to fix. We were just so limited on the amount of memory that these boxes had, because uh, like I, I remember, a lot of the seventy-five hundreds only had you know one hundred twenty-eight megs, and these were service providers that were running them, so they had the full internet table on them. Uh, so there were a lot of times where it's like we couldn't do a feature because it would, you know, we'd basically run them out of memory as soon as if they upgraded and had this feature enabled. Um, yeah, 128
0: so, meg were like 325 thousand routes or something like that around that um, time.
1: Back then, it was probably I think it was like 120 or so. It was oh, like, okay. or, or like around 1999 or so. It was it was around 100 thousand, okay. uh, give or take. Um, but yeah, it was still it was a pretty significant you know limitation that we had had to work around. Now it's like you don't really have to think about it that much. It's like got plenty of RAM.
0: That's because folks like Jordan buy all the memory they want to. <laughs> Somehow I'm
3: on the receiving
0: end of this. I don't buy it. My company sells it. Oh, okay. oh Jordan's company goes out and sells as yes. much memory as they can sell. There you go. And you need all of it, all of the memory.
1: <laughs> but yeah, the uh, the, the peer thing that that was that was pretty early on and was was pretty significant. And I remember like when I first started working with BGP, uh, they had this limitation. It's like, well, you had peer groups, but all of the members of the the peer groups had to be on the same subnet. Um, And that was like a really early restriction. And uh, that was because they they couldn't change the next hop. Like you had this update and you had to send the exact same update to all of the neighbors. So even the next hop had to be the same. And then uh, I guess eventually enough people yelled and screamed that said, you know, this is unrealistic trying to trying to use this that uh they change it so they, they'll rewrite the next top at the last minute so then peer groups got much more much more popular um but like if you go back and read uh like the book to read in the 90s to learn bgp was the internet routing architectures by um I I it it. Sam, sam halabi yeah Halabi and in the book it has that limitation it's like uh, if you do peer groups they have to be you know on the same subnet um so that was the, that was where I guess I probably first heard about that was was that book. Um,
0: wow, that's really cool. In fact, I think that was the first book published by Cisco Press.
1: Really? I didn't yeah, know
0: that. I think that was the first book published by Cisco Press. Uh, I think I he eventually a did
1: a, a second edition, but
0: yes, yeah, he did a second yeah. edition. Yeah, Sam eventually did a second edition. He's disappeared off the face of the earth now. I'm thinking. That Inca or Srihari might have done the initial peer group stuff, but I, I, I want to say it was Inca. But anyway, who knows? It's it's lost in the mist of history. You
3: should have them on. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well. <laughs> so so you said um, peer groups went in in the mid nineties. That made a big difference. So after that, you still saw this this the performance still wasn't that great, right? I mean,
1: yeah, it was still. Um, so, so I guess I, I really got involved with it i guess starting around 2000 uh when i was on this deployment and scale team and you know we had a by, by that point the internet table had started growing enough we had a lot of customers that were hitting scale issues like you know uh, i remember uh sprint did i did a lot of work with Sprintlink, and so they had boxes that had you know 120 neighbors um which you had 100,000 routes trying to converge them over 120 neighbors it, it you know could take a while um so, one of the, I guess, first things I was involved with was a uh, read-only mode. Um, so, read-only mode in BGP is this sort of phase when, when BGP first starts up. Uh, it just sort of sits there and is, is really quiet. And it just sort of accepts routes from all of its neighbors. And then after it has all the routes from all the neighbors, it, it says, okay, now I'm going to figure out which one is the best path and put them in the routing table and start advertising them and that whole thing. Um, so, read-only mode came about. Uh, so we were doing some work on the GSR platform at Cisco, and uh, GSR is you know it was this distributed architecture where you had a, an RP and had all these line cards. So the GSR had to sync you know the forwarding table down with all the line cards, and it did this. I remember the messages were called XDR messages, and I can't not remember what XDR stood for, but <laughs> I remember that that's what it was. Um, and so what would happen was the you would boot the box and the first BGP neighbor would come up and we'd learn the full internet table and we'd install them in the routing table and start building XDR messages to send them to the line cards. And then two seconds later, the second BGP peer would come up and we would learn the full internet table again. And that would trigger, you know, best path changes and changes to the routing table and whatnot. And would cause more XDR messages. And so this just kept kind of happening. Like if you've got a box with 100 neighbors... Uh, you would just get all of this crazy turn at the beginning. Um, and eventually the box would basically run itself out of memory, uh, building all these XCR messages, trying to, trying to get the line cards converged. And um, so I was working on this with uh there was an engineer, I think she's back at Cisco now. Her name's uh, Gargi uh, Nalawad.
0: Yeah, and that's right.
1: Anyway, Gargi and I, Gargi and I were looking, we're working on this and like the box just keeps running out of memory. And, uh, you know, we would like look at each other and we're like, we just need BGP to, to shut up for a minute, you know, and let, let the peers come up. Um, and so that's we've, we've all said that from yeah.
0: time to time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I all the Yeah. BGP to shut up for a minute. <laughs> yeah,
1: so so read-only mode was was started as a way to, to get GSR to converge uh, on a reboot, just with without falling over and dying when when these neighbors would would come up in this, you know, cascade. Basically,
0: I'm trying to remember. I think the GSR was different because the GSR was. I mean, so the 7500 effectively had this backplane that was basically the AGS Plus, which was instead of being cabled, it was just a pluggable architecture, um, like it was basically an AGS Plus with a pluggable architecture, and then with like a, a, a circuit board in the back instead of cables. And I think that the GSR is the first one where Cisco actually designed. A real backplane like across a, cl- a crossbar fabric or something like that so it, it wasn't like just an ethernet port or something on the on the card it was like actually something different so it had its own qos and everything it was like the first yeah. time that it had been done so it had all this weird interprocess communication going on that no other routers seemed to have at that time
1: yeah you had to get i mean each each line card had a full copy of the fib so it was you had to you had to get all of that state down to the line cards you know as quickly as you could um in hindsight i don't know why we just didn't tell the cef guys to fix the the line card download so that they didn't run the box out of memory with these xdr messages but i don't know (laughs) i guess guess we got to it first or something
0: well (laughs) but
1: but it's still like um i mean redo limit still gets it's still used a lot uh like we, we use it, uh, so Donald and I work on FRR, um, so we've got it in FRR just, you know, to help with convergence at boot up. So it, it makes a pretty big difference. Um,
0: now, when you come out of read only mode, didn't you do something to bring it out of read only mode, or did you just, was that just?
1: Oh, yeah, so we had it, um, so what we would do is once, once all of the neighbors came up, uh, we would wait for them to send us all of their routes, and then they would send uh, an end-of-rib marker. Right. So it's like the special little update that they can send you to say, basically, hey, I'm done. Um, So once we received an end of rib from everybody, we would exit read only mode. Uh, There were some other other ways to exit, too. Like there was like a a two minute timer. So at most you would wait two minutes. Um, If you had, you know, a neighbor that was just misconfigured that would never, ever come up. We had to put some smarts in to not wait on those neighbors because we didn't do that initially. And. we quickly found out that almost everybody has at least one misconfigured neighbor somewhere that is never going to come up. And so all the boxes would always wait the full two minutes. Um, so we're so we, actually
0: putting smarts in BGP. <laughs>
1: yeah, That's yeah. BGP is awesome. What are you talking about? <laughs> so,
2: so, is, so is this kind of the genesis for, for other routing protocols for their read-only modes? or
1: um, does, does EHRP have such a thing? Well, I
2: mean, it it does. And that's exactly why I was asking the question,
1: actually. Uh, I don't know. Where did you guys get the idea for to do it for the
0: (laughs) So so basically, Donnie always just went through the BGP code and figured out what he could grab from the BGP code. I don't think you
2: could actually claim he actually ever looked at the BGP code. (laughs) (laughs) But I I probably shouldn't speak for him there, but...
1: (laughs) I, I did not know that EIGRP had done that also. Um, yeah, it's got a read-only mode. So, so actually, OSPF and
0: ISIS now. do as well now, too. There are ways you can exchange a hash. Like in um, ISIS, of course, you have a database descriptor, so it's always had descriptor, so it's always been that way. But OSPF also now has a, like, a read-only mode where you can send an end-of-rib marker and say, yeah, I'm done. Now you can run SPF or whatever after first convergence. So, yeah, I mean, I think that was all stolen from you, Daniel. I think you should be paid <laughs> a lot more than should you're get, paid. Get, a,
1: get a royalty or something. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll bring a jelly bean, bean by a little good. later. <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice, nice. <laughs> so, okay, so read-only mode's really cool. And then after that, I mean, I remember that, you know, it was creeping up, but it, a lot of people, particularly SprintLink, Um, This was Peter Lothberg, right, at SprintLink, mostly, Uh, yeah, who still gives me a hard time every time I see him about BGP convergence. Anyway, (laughs) we're still complaining about BGP convergence. So uh, you did, after that, was update groups, right?
1: Yeah, so update groups came about. um, So I guess I'll explain what what update groups are quickly first. So uh, an update group is just you you take all the neighbors that have the same outbound policy uh, and you stick them in a group much like a peer group where you just build the updates for the first one and then replicate the updates for for all the members of the update group. Um, And this came about, I mean, we we had peer groups, and if a customer configured peer groups, they were set because they got all of this great update replication, you know, where you you do the work once and then you just copy them for all the other members of the peer group. Uh, But we had a lot of customers that just didn't configure them. Um, And if they... Didn't configure them and never called us, that was fine, but they tended to not configure them, and then they would call and complain about slow convergence. Um, so sort of our, our workaround instead of like trying to educate you know, this huge BDP, BGP deployment base that we had on peer groups was, it's like, all right, why don't we just do this dynamically? Um, so Gargi implemented this. Um, I remember she implemented it, and this was right when I had, joined the ios bgp team so this was this was the very first thing i ever code reviewed um i remember uh but yeah this was this was pretty you know pretty pretty popular it made a really big difference um, it just saved saved everybody a lot of configuration you know work it's like they they got all the benefits of peer groups in terms of scale but they didn't have to actually sit down and configure them if they if they didn't want to um, We still tried to get people to use peer groups just because it made the configs smaller and and easier to manage and troubleshoot. Uh, But it it was no longer, you know, a must-have in terms of
0: Well, the peer peer group is actually, manually configuring it is actually more efficient at figuring out what should have the same updates than the update group ever could, right?
1: Uh, Well, the the end result ends up being the same um, because even, like, with update groups, if you configure peer groups, it basically just still goes through all the neighbors and looks to find all of the ones that have the same outbound policy um, okay and I was thinking about this when I was, was writing you know the notes for this thing was um, even if everybody had always configured peer groups we would have eventually done update groups anyway just because you had all these uh, things added to BGP uh, where so like ad path for example ad path is this thing you negotiate in the BGP open capability um and whether or not a neighbor negotiates ad path has a an impact on what updates you send him and the formats for those updates, so there are all these things that that come up uh that have a role in update group selection that you don't know about until the neighbor comes up um so we we would have had to do them eventually anyway, even if you know everybody had been diligent and configured them um
0: yeah cool, great, all right, but so that probably increased the performance some because actually it just brought peer groups to everybody, right?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And then after that, I see on your list here, update packing.
1: Yeah, so update packing. Um, so this is, this is really where the, the, I guess the curve on that old slide really started to take off in terms of the, the performance. Um, so update packing is just uh, in BGP, you have an update. And at the top of the update, you have a list of attributes. And then after that, you have all of the prefixes that share those attributes. So let's say if your entire BGP table, you have all of the prefixes only use 10 different unique sets of attributes. Well, ideally, you could advertise the whole table in 10 updates. Um, So let's say you've got 10,000 routes, right? 10 updates, boom, you're done. Um, So that's that's what you would call, you know, 100%. Packing efficiency. Uh, the inverse of that would be zero percent packing efficiency, where you send one prefix in every update. Um, so when I got like one, I got involved with this, and we were looking at it. I forget what the exact number was, but we were something like you know twenty percent packing efficiency, or so, something something really really bad. Like we were we were not putting very many prefixes in each, each update, um, and we would end up building multiple updates that all had the same set of attributes and each one would have two or three prefixes listed in it. Um, so this, this had, you know, pretty negative impact on, on scale. Uh, so the piece that I worked on, um, was I wrote a bunch of code that that indexed the BGP table by attribute set. So I could say, given this, this attribute set, you know, go and visit all of the different prefixes, uh, that, that use that attribute. So, well, that, in,
0: well in memory, what a lot of yeah. people don't understand about the way BGP works is in memory, the BGP table is not held as a BGP table. Like there's not a route with its attributes. There's actually an attribute table and then there's a route table, right? And then the BGP attribute table actually has a set of pointers or the routes have pointers to the attributes that they use. And so it's actually not one unified table. So many times we talk about a BGP update going all the way through the network. There's no such thing as a BGP update that goes all the way through the network. It's actually peer to peer. Yep. And it's ripped apart into multiple tables and then rebuilt at every hop. There's there's no update.
1: Yeah, you end up you, you internally you end up like sort of pulling the attributes out and sort of storing them off in a in a different table, and that and that's just you know a way to save memory, um, which you know was such a such a precious commodity. I guess we, we we had to do do things like that to 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 you know not run out. Um, but yeah, the the update packing thing. This was one of those ones where you know if we had had plenty of memory we would have just said okay go walk the table the whole bgp table build all the updates you need all at once put all the prefixes in and then just send them all at the, at the end and you would be done um, and I remembered I, d- I did try doing that and the box just you know fell over and died because it, it ran out of memory you know two seconds into this process or whatever um, so this is again like the 75 hundreds that had 128 megs it was just a real limitation that we had to work around. Um, so that was why we had to do the whole piece of, you know, walking the table, indexing the, the table based on attribute was so that we could build these updates and pack them efficiently without running the box out of memory. Um, so remember we, we did this and yeah, this, this gave us a pretty huge, uh, jump in terms of BGP scale, right? Just in terms of, how many peers we could converge and how fast and, and things like that.
0: Yeah, this also <clears throat> this also impacts TCP again because each BGP segment that you send has to be pushed as a BGP segment or TCP segment or whatever, right? Yeah. So that's like your windowing, you're actually waiting for an act, all of this other stuff. It impacts your window size. The more you can pack in a single BGP update. The, the faster TCP, the larger the segments that, that TCP's sending, and it makes the TCP windowing a lot more efficient.
1: Yeah, you end up, you end up right. if you're packing efficiently, you're sending less data, right? So there's mm-hmm. there's fewer acts that, that have to come back and you have to process. Um, this actually reminds me, it's not, I, I didn't have this in my list, but another thing that we worked on around the same time frame was, uh, so the, the TCP acts were a problem, actually. So we would... Eventually we got to the point where we could build all these updates very, very quickly and efficiently, and we would send them out. And then we would just get this massive wave of TCP acts that would come back to the box at one time. And uh, you know these are all destined for the RP. So I remember all of those packets, um, like on a GSR, you've got these distributed platforms or whatever, all these packets ended up going into these interface input queues. And we had problems where the input queue would fill up with nothing but TCP acts. And so at that point, we were start dropping TCP acts, which was just pretty horrendous. Cause then you you know you've got to retransmit and whatnot. Um, it was really kind of kind of bad because you'd done all the work to get the, the data there and and he'd act it, and then you just you drop the act. Um, so we ended up doing uh, I think we increased the input, the input queue size uh there was also this thing called selective selective packet discard that ios had oh uh,
0: yeah selective ACK, yeah mm-hmm. and it was, was like a,
1: mm-hmm. this was like this is like a separate queue input queue for routing protocols uh traffic um so we ended up we, we ended up getting bgp basically so that the the tcp axe could go on the selective packet discard queue which was which was deeper um so that that made a difference. Um, what else? I remember so was- this, this queue was like 70 packets deep or something. And, uh, I was giving this talk one or given a scale talk one time and I started, I was basically complaining about this. I was like, who in the world set this, this queue to only 70 packets deep. Uh, and at the time my VP of iOS or whatever, Joel Byan was in the room and he stopped me. He raised his hand. He's like, Actually, I'm the one that set that to (laughs) seventy. So that was a little awkward. (laughs) To his credit, he's like, I I think I just picked a number out of thin air. It's like he he didn't have any scientific reason for why it was seventy. Well,
3: right, but I mean, in in the in level of efficiency he had when he picked that number as well, I'm sure that cue was perfectly fine, right? Probably
1: plenty deep, you know. Right,
3: you you were uh, you were fighting your own efficiency. Then all of a sudden, you're getting back more information faster.
2: Was this classic iOS Daniel? I assume.
1: Yeah. Yeah. This was. This is
2: iOS. So yeah. So classic iOS has this thing where when you create your own socket, you can control the queue size yourself and tell the underlying infrastructure how many packets you expect it to receive.
1: Hmm. And that Hmm. was one of the trickle down to the interface input queues, or uh,
2: I don't know. I'm thinking about that. Yeah. I this I mean I ran into the same kind of problems I, not to digress but I ran into the exact same kind of problems with EIGRP where you would get all of a sudden more packets than you can handle the input you can handle and you'd ha- end up dropping and then then the whole world just kind of fell apart yeah yeah but, which is you know but
0: yeah wasn't here, there something there. Daniel where you went into TCP and actually did a push like you told TCP when to send a segment
1: uh yeah there i think was some, that was
0: coded someplace in there
1: there were some things you could you could basically queue up a bunch of data and then say okay i'm ready now go now go send it um i forget what that was It's is like the push flag well, the problem or is if you
0: don't if you don't fill up a full segment tcp was actually waiting for the full segment to get full before it would send or there was some timer right and so then you could have uh, bgp could actually say no i'm done yeah, okay. you, you could Same you could you
1: could tickle TCP and tell it to that you were you were finished more or less and go ahead and yeah. send send what you have. Yeah. Um, another thing we did with TCP was the whole uh, the path MTU discovery and max segment size and that whole thing. Um, I, re- I forget the details. Like the the default max segment size was like 536 bytes or something yep. for some weird reason. Right. And I remember we bumped that up to like 1460. Um, Instead from you know fifteen hundred on Ethernet, um, and that was another one we did that, you know, made a big difference in fewer TCP acts and all that stuff. Um, I don't remember if we ever turned on path MTU discovery by default. I
0: don't um, remember. i would have to go back yeah.
1: and go back and
0: yeah, lock. yeah, cool. Yeah. So you got to one hundred percent packing efficiency effectively before it was over with.
1: Yeah, yeah. So by 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 the end of that, we had. We did the update packing. We fixed the input queues. We fixed the max segment size, um, and like the scale numbers were uh, like through the roof compared to what they had been, you know, three or four years before that. Um, so I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but they were way 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 higher. Uh, See, so yeah, it was a, it was a big a big improvement um, over several several years. But okay. after after that, I mean, we didn't. I think we we kind of got ahead of the the curve for a little while. Like we stopped hearing complaints about slow, you know, scale problems and convergence and whatnot.
0: Well, then 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 the problem moved to convergence itself, right?
1: Yeah, so single so like single route convergence, right? Yeah, is single uh, route
0: convergence instead of initial.
1: Yeah, so single route convergence in in BGP is uh, kind of a, a different beast from your your. You know initial clear IP BGP star convergence um, so single route convergence you know it's like I've got one wrap that route that flaps somewhere and it takes however long for that to, to propagate you know across the internet and this is where to me when people say uh, BGP is slow this I, I kind of think this is what they're talking about a lot of times Is like how long it takes something to converge you know worldwide or internet wide um, and a big part of this comes down to this, there's this timer in BGP called the min route advertisement interval. Uh, and this is, in the original RFC, they had this statement that said something like, you should never advertise a route to a neighbor uh, more often than once every 30 seconds, right? So if Russ and I are peers, I shouldn't advertise 10.0 slash 8 to him, you know, every two seconds. There should be this 30 second gap in between uh, advertisements. Uh, what they didn't consider, uh, and this is before I was in before my time, so I don't really know what all went into it. But um, they didn't think about like how much memory that would take to keep track of when did I send each prefix to each neighbor. Like you would basically need a timer, you know, for each each prefix, you know, in each neighbor. Uh, and nobody ever implemented that. So instead, what everybody implemented was just a timer for when was the last time I sent an update to a neighbor. So they had one timer per neighbor. And so what you would see is BGP would send out, you know, a wave of, of updates to a neighbor and then for the next 30 seconds it was basically just everything, all the, anything that happened for the next 30 seconds had to queue up and wait for this min route advertisement interval to pop. Um, so this really, really slowed down convergence a good a good bit. Uh, and I went back and looked, the, so the original RFC called for 30 seconds basically for all neighbors. Uh, I remember iOS did 30 seconds for EBGP and 5 seconds for IBGP. Um, at some point, I got really frustrated, and I just sort of snuck in a bug fix that, that dropped it to zero for <laughs> IBGP and uh, 5 seconds for EBGP. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I didn't, uh, I remember I ran, like I ran our test, and they all passed, and we just kind of rolled the dice and you know, and and did it, but we never got any complaints, so you know, <laughs> it worked well, out well.
0: reducing to zero or reducing to five actually does increase the number of updates that are transmitted, right?
1: Because yeah, it can. Um, so, so BGP, you know, it, like if you if you put four routers in a in a mesh, right, in BGP, and you you have a loopback on one of them that that you're advertising, and let's say you shut down that loopback. Uh, so BGP has to send a couple of different cycles of messages back and forth before they figure out that none of them have a route to that loopback anymore. Yeah, it's
0: the the classic hunt.
1: Yeah. The yeah, BG, path yeah, hunting. The
0: shor- yeah, path hunting the shortest to yep. the longest AS path basically.
1: Yep. yep. So it does uh, it does increase, I guess, the number of messages that are exchanged in path hunting. Some just because you're reacting so much faster. Yeah. Um, but you're at the you're at the trade off of you know, basically sub-second convergence. So, if, so like, in like FRR, we just, I set this timer to zero for both eBGP and iBGP. Um, and BGP for a single route change is, is sub-second, right? I mean, it's it's very, very fast. Um, so, if you change this to zero, it's still then, too slow, though, Daniel. Then <laughs> sub-second's too <laughs> slow.
0: Because it's BGP, it's still too slow. I <laughs> mean, <Sorry>, that's just... <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah I mean if you if you change this one timer it makes a, a huge huge difference um, I kind of regret that I didn't make it zero for EBGP also uh, the, the only reason I didn't at the time was you know dampening was still pretty popular and I was kind of worried that it's like alright if we set this to zero then people may start magically being dampened by their you know their providers uh, because we'd be sending out updates at a much much faster frequency
0: yeah. Um, well, dampening is still a thing. Sometimes people still do dampening. Sometimes, so you can't ever tell.
1: Right? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of,
0: mm, it goes in and out from some sometimes, right? So, yeah, yeah. Popularity.
1: It's uh so that's another one that that sort of slows down convergence worldwide, right? It's like you, if, if things start getting dampened, that that has a pretty big impact um,
0: on convergence. Speed. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. But that's and the right to, place. Yeah, and the right place to do dampening really is on the interface towards the peer on the peer itself, not yeah. on, not on the route. But you know, yeah,
1: yeah, you shouldn't be dampening you know, like your service provider, right? You, you yeah. should be. If you're the service <laughs> provider, you dampen, you know, the the mom and pop ISP or the customer right. or whatever, right? Um,
0: so starting in the mid 1990s to the mid 2000s thereabouts, right? Is that when MRI was done? The work on MRI was done.
1: Um so i made that change that was probably the only thing that was probably like 2004 ish is uh and and i did that only in ios um i don't remember i worked on ios xr and bgp for a little while but i don't remember what their timers were um my guess is probably something something i think everybody
0: sets them five and zero now by default or something like that yeah. And zero, or two and zero or something like that pretty much yeah so we're talking about a 10-year journey in getting from the point where you know and and along this time of course the memory size was going up the processor speed was going up donald do you remember when the first x86 processor went into a cisco router i don't remember no, no i don't remember when we switched from when cisco switched from RISC to x86
2: Probably the
0: mid-2000s then. Yeah, probably about the mid-2000s. So, you know, we're talking about a performance journey from the mid-1990s to the mid-2000s. That's actually pretty amazing that all this work went across a 10-year period. A lot of times when people look at these protocols today and the performance they have and stuff, they think, you know, that was probably done in a couple of months. But, I mean, this is 10 years of work to get, you know, to get to the point where um, the performance was reasonable enough to be usable.
1: Yeah, it no. definitely. It took a while. I remember, too, like you would just uh, you'd find one bottleneck and you'd you'd work through that. Then you'd find the next one. Right. And you just kind of had to keep chugging along until eventually you got to this point. It's like, OK, this this actually you is very fast now. And scales yeah. very well. Yeah. Um, so it, it did take a while.
0: And all those lessons have been poured into free-range routing.
1: You
2: say that, right? But I, I think we've, we had an argument recently about MRI and yeah. what the value should be.
0: Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's a continuous ongoing thing, right, with MRI, particularly. Particularly in the data center space where it should be zero always versus, you know, acting as a route server in, a, in an IX fabric yeah. where people might actually be dampening you and you don't know. Right. So you can't necessarily throw a lot of messages at them and assume that it's just going to work. Yeah. So
1: it, it has been it's been interesting, like, uh, you know, working on FR, it's like you you see a lot of the same problems or I, I've seen a lot of the same same problems and, you know, scale issues or bugs or whatnot that, that I saw in I saw in iOS uh, way back when. So it's been kind of cool. It's like, oh, I remember I remember fixing this or, or <laughs> what, what we did. <laughs> um, like update groups, like um, like when I got to Cumulus, I guess about four years ago. Uh, actually, when I got to Cumulus, we did peer groups didn't even do update replication. Like we we put that in, um, and then we put in update groups, and we've done you know lots of scale fixes. So it's been been, been pretty cool. Like you get to get to solve a lot of the same problems again. Yeah, it's really cool. Hopefully, in a better yeah. way.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, it's been great. I mean, I, do you have any more questions, Jordan? Any? I, I actually
3: have this running right in my head. So we, we talked a lot about how, you know, we were constrained on processor and memory, and that seems to be kind of a solved problem now, at least for the most part. What, what Are we fighting a similar problem now? Is there something that we're fighting against like we were then? Uh, with modern topologies? I'm just kind of curious talking to, to three very experienced engineers here about so, so <laughs> building first,
2: protocols. So the first thing that actually comes to mind is that the decisions and algorithms chosen for low memory and low speed CPUs are not necessarily the same algorithms that you're going to choose for high speed lots of memory. And those decisions guide, guided the architecture of how things were laid out. And it's not always easy going from A to B, to get to take advantage of the new memory and the new C in the new CPU
1: power. Yeah. Makes sense.
0: Yeah, like yeah, dampening. Th- like d- yeah, dampening damped, was actually right. dampening. Yeah, a way
1: to – Like they didn't. They didn't want one misbehaving thing to mm-hmm. to kill the CPU of every router on the internet. Right. So that was. That's mm-hmm. how dampening got going. Um, like that. I mean. Now I wonder, I wonder how many routes you would have to have dampened to like or flapping to significantly, you know, raise the CPU on a on a modern box. Do you remember, do you
0: remember those presentations at Nanog about the percentage of routes that flapped all the time? And there were like discussions around if you set dampening to this it would drop So, what percentage of those routes and stuff it was pretty interesting that that i,
1: re- I remember uh ripe had this set of parameters that they published ah, yeah, just like guidelines right. right so ripe had these guidelines of like oh you set the dampening half-life to this and decay to this and whatnot and whatnot and whatnot and this was like the de facto thing that folks were supposed to follow and uh i forget i started looking at this for a customer or something and I found out that the guidelines that they published wouldn't actually dampen any routes. Like, there was this thing where uh, your penalty had to go above a certain amount. Um, but with the numbers that they had that they recommended, the penalty could never go above that number. It, was, it could equal it, but you, weren't, you didn't dampen if it was equal. It had to go above. So, uh, I remember that was, that was kind of funny. It's like, yeah, dampening is not really doing anything if you're following... To recommend a guideline um, yeah they changed it they changed it pretty quickly there after
0: that yeah. so Jordan I, I think that I think your question is a valid one in that you know this is one thing Donald's answer is is one answer that that's very important is that we're dealing with protocols that were designed you know on much smaller processors and, and designed for a different different world and so you know we're, we're dealing with this well maybe somebody does have a processor out there still that's still that slow right
1: Right. So I mean, you, we see
0: older gear, so we can't we can't just assume that everyone's operating it. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you do about that? And today, I think we're starting to see more problems around. Um, uh, you know, when we talk about OSPF and ISIS later on in different video casts, maybe we can talk about a little bit about micro loops. And in reality, micro loops are, uh, and 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 the next one we're going to do with Daniel is talking about churn. And in reality, these things are impact of having enough processor that. Hysteresis states were states in the protocol that would never have been observed in a very slow processor. Once you do dampening and all this other stuff, the convergence is just so slow that you just don't you don't even recognize these things exist because they don't occur in the wild. But when you get a fast enough processor and enough free memory, all of a sudden your speed goes up enough that you start seeing weird problems creep in in the design of the protocol itself that you never would have guessed were there.
2: Uh, the the yeah. other thing that I think might be worthwhile pointing out is pretty much all the performance issues I've ever fixed have been a poor choice of algorithm more than anything else. And that's the, the correct algorithm and the correct data structure chosen for whatever problem you're doing. This isn't necessarily a networking issue. It's a programming issue where people choose the wrong data structure or the wrong algorithm and it kills your performance. And that's what you really need to look for.
0: Like using uh... SQL Lite with Python for BGP. So I didn't Daniel. say it.
1: <laughs> I got it. I got it to scale to uh, data center type numbers. Um, <laughs> you, you wouldn't want to throw a full internet table at it, but it but it would it worked.
0: Guess like I said, it was it was, it was a science setup. project. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. So anything else, Jordan? Anything else, Donald? No, I'm good. All right. You don't have a blog or anything, do you, Daniel?
1: Um not networking related, no. <laughs> oh well.
3: See, are, you you try- on, are you on any social media anywhere where people can find you?
1: Uh yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm D Walton76 on Twitter.
3: Okay. Uh,
1: so not terribly so, active, but you but yeah, you can follow me. Maybe I'll maybe I'll tweet something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Excellent. Great. Well, thanks, Daniel, for coming on. And, yeah. Yes, um, thank you.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank, cool. thank, Hey, thank, thank you guys for doing this. Um, like when Russ was telling me about this, I was like, you know, that's, that's a really cool idea. Because like uh, some of the things that Fred Baker mentioned, I had never heard, right? So it, I think it's good to get some of this stuff down.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think so too, yeah. And we'll have you back on to talk about churn. Because that's an interesting little piece of history as well in AdPath, <laughs> how that came about. Cool. All right. Well, thanks. And I guess we'll wrap up then, Jordan. Anything else to... All right. We're all good. All right. Until next time.